Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Uh, one of the things I wanted to note was uh, in congregational prayer, you'll note that this week we'll uh, have Thanksgiving for Pastor Brunson was released from, uh, from prison in Turkey this week. We've prayed for him a number of times, really over the last, I think, year, year and a half or so. So uh, that's really an answer to prayer. I wanted to acknowledge that. And uh, with that comes the, the reminder, really Pastor Andrade's uh, call to confession. I think it was called to confession, maybe in the sermon last week, where he talked about the suffering that, uh, that we experience as Christians. And obviously Pastor Brunson has, uh, has suffered in, uh, in prison there and being imprisoned as he was in Turkey. And that's oftentimes the suffering that we uh, think about uh, when we think of Christian suffering. But also aware and think of the fact that because of our sinful fallen nature, we, uh, we experience suffering ourselves as well. So there's consequences of that sinful nature that bring suffering on, on us. So as you come to worship this morning, be know, just be reminded that it was the same Christ that, uh, and God that freed Pastor Brunson that calls us to worship today. And he's the one where we can freely confess our sins and we can know that we are freely forgiven. And then we are consecrated as we worship and we're set apart as we feed on the scriptures. And then we're free to commune with God and to fellowship with him. And then finally we're equipped and strengthened as we are and we're, as we're commissioned to live our lives full of grace and full of hope. So in the same way, I invite you to worship together today with us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Again, as God called us to um, to this holy day, He set apart for us. It's always appropriate to uh, reflect in our lives and see how much we are breaking God's law and failing to fulfill His commands and come to Him for forgiveness. So, Matthew chapter five, verse thirteen. It is two analogy, uh, very tied to Jewish uh, saints at that time. One is about the salt, and the other one is about the light. You are, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It's no longer, it's no longer good. For anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are lights of the world. A seat set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory your Father who is in heaven. 
So, um, salt. We know what is salt, and we know the reason, the, the, the purpose, uh, especially for those who do um, very nice dishes and uh, work in restaurants. Uh, salt preserves, uh, first of all, salt gives flavors. I mean, I have been in Amazon jungle and for five months, and one of the tribes, um, a lot of big fishes, you know, and I was just thinking to myself, well, if we were in Sao Paulo city, we had a lot of things to do, a, a nice fish here, but they, know, they don't have even salt. So one day was nice, the second day, the third day, I said, oh, I don't want to eat this anymore. There's no even salt. So that's horrible. So salt gives taste and also preserves uh, from corruption and decay. And it's pretty interesting because disciples of Jesus who really uh, uh, hold their call in, in the kingdom of God, they are supposed to make this earth um, pure and more palatable. So when we are not fulfilling this call, we became unusable. And the word here is pretty interesting. Uh, it lost its saltness. It's a Jewish proverb saying, which, which means become foolish. So when a rabbi uh, used to say to his disciple, hey, don't lose your taste. It means don't be foolish. In other words, don't lose your wisdom. So disciple of Jesus Christ who is losing their taste, they're becoming foolish and they're useful in this world. This world needs wisdom, biblical wisdom, and we are the one to give to this world wisdom. And the light is the same thing. I mean, what, what, is, what, a, what a use God has for a secret disciple. Have you met a secret disciple? He's a disciple, but just here in the church. Just here in the church. In his, her daily life, he, he hides himself. I mean, who are you? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm a guy. I'm, I'm a, you go to church, you, what is your belief? Yeah, you know, pretty much neutral. And that's not the goal. As a light, you cannot hit yourself. That's the point here. Jesus is the light of the world. It's just, just as Jesus is divine, divine in which we are connected and we are supposed to give fruits. If you are in Christ, if you are in the light of the world, you are supposed to be a light in the world. So those two analogies here bring to our minds our call, who we are in Christ. We are salt and we are light. I don't know how you uh, lived your week uh, uh, in your work, in your house, uh, but it does call us to reflect upon our behavior and call us to reflect upon our sins, how much we have neglected our call to be salt and light. Begin in our house. See how, how much you are so 
uh, unsought in your words with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents. How much you have lost your wisdom when you see um, someone committing something that you don't like. So it is time for us to go before God and confess our sins. And if you are able, please kneel where you are and go to God. Let's go to God and confess our sins. text from today comes from 2nd Peter chapter 3 verses 8 to 10 but I think I'm gonna start reading from verse 1 just to give us a little bit of the background here and it's always hard to uh, speak about a topic that it's not very common in our days and as you're gonna see here the top for today the the, the the theme here for our sermon is the certainty of the second coming of Christ. Just as we don't hear too much about hell, we don't hear too much about the second coming of Christ. So it's always difficult to speak about top like that. But I remember I, I wrote a paper on this passage, so I, I went back this week and said, huh, I haven't preach about uh, the second coming of Christ. So let's, let's do that. I think it would be great. Uh, how many of you kids have you heard about the second coming of Christ? Okay, good. Good. It's a privilege. Because when I was a child, remember, I didn't grow in a Christian family. I was a, a Roman and Catholic um, child. And when I became a believer... I remember running to my mother and saying, hey, Christ is coming again. And my mother said to me, well, since I was born, I, I have heard about this. <laughs> like, <laughs> whatever. And exactly what we're going to see here. Uh, a, uh, an amazing uh, disbelief. So let's go to uh, our chapter here, verse 1. Let's go, uh, let's start in verse 1. Chapter 3. Verse 1, this is now the second letter. You see that? The second letter that I, Peter, I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? You see that? Verse 4, where is the promise of His coming? That's the main question in, 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 in this book, Second Peter. That's the main question for Peter in his book. What, what is the, uh, His coming? What is the promise of His coming? For ever since, like my mother said to me, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked ago, and the earth was formed, formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then exists was deluded with water and perished. 
But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Then our main verses here, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowliness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with wrath, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Let's pray one more time. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit help us to reflect on it, understand it, and bringing light to our minds and fear that we need to approach this passage, O oh Lord. And we pray all of these in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, the main question here in this letter is in verse 4. What is the promise of His coming? And that question is posed, is presented by the scoffers who are suggesting an apparent failure regarding Christ's return. So Peter, when he's writing the, his letter here, he not only refutes the, the error here, uh, but also encourages and exhorts believers who may be worried about this objection here. And they are actually experiencing a mystery, a mixture of feelings. You can imagine yourself, like today for us, we're experiencing this falling world. You know, right now in Venezuela, I'm going to Brazil this week, and I'll be there for the second round of election. And our nation right now, Christians right now, I'm going to narrow down here, Christians right now are divided between communism and democracy, as we can say. And we have our neighbor, Venezuela, right there, falling apart. People don't have even toilet papers in, 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 to buy, nothing, water, water. And Christians supporting communism. So you have a, this mix between striving in this life, not just with the world, but ourselves, our sins and temptations, striving with all these struggles and still resting and trying to anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. So that's the feeling that those believers here are experiencing. And if you're a normal Christian, I, I guess you are experiencing the same thing as you look to the world. We know that there is a promise that God's coming. Christ is coming again. And, but yet we're still experiencing these struggles, this falling world. So it was appropriate for Peter not just to rebuke, to um, oppose the scoffers here's objection, 
but also to encourage believers that they should believe, keep the promise that Christ is coming. Christ is coming. And the certainty of Christ's second coming here, as we're going to see again, I didn't put my three points in the bulletins, but we're going to have three points. You're going to see here that the certainty of Christ's second coming, if you like to write down, the certainty of Christ's second coming is based on God's sovereignty over time, attested by His providential delay toward His beloved ones, and judgment toward the unrepented. So, Christ's second coming, the delay here, is based on God's sovereignty over time, and His providential gracious love to reach out the elect. So let's go to the first point here. God's sovereignty over time. According to the scoffers here, the apparent delay in the coming of Christ goes against the reality that God will one day judge the evil ones. If Christ is not coming, there is no judgment. And actually, He's not coming because since creation... We are hearing about this, and yet, nothing. So, just as Christ not coming to vindicate His people, God's not going to judge the world. Peter, however, exhorts believers here, saying, Do not overlook this one fact. King James says, Do not be ignorant of this one thing. So, thus, the point here is that the readers are exhorted to not be ignorant. But not be ignorant of what? What is the one thing here? These one facts. To explain this, Peter goes to the Old Testament. Psalms chapter 90 verse 4. It's interesting that there is nothing new when, I love the apostles when they do theology, because they go back to the Old Testament to explain and interpret Christ in His work. So Peter goes to Psalms, chapter 19, verse 4, and quotes, For a thousand years in, in your sight I like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. So Peter is quoting Psalms here. Now, in the context of Psalms, it has first to do with the eternity of God, His divine nature, who He is in light of time. Who is God in light of time? So Psalms keep quoting, saying, keep saying, for everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And then, Psalms also emphasize the finite of human nature. You sweep man away in the sleep of death. So for us, it's, it's very difficult to understand what Peter is saying here. A thousand years like a day, a day is like a thousand years. But the Jewish people reading this, they knew what Peter was saying. What Peter was saying is that God 
is God and man is man. God is not subject to time as you and I, we are. In other words, Peter is just correcting the scoffer's objection by saying there is a, a, a distinction, there is a, a distinction be, between creator and creatures. And you guys really misunderstood that. So that's the main point here. Peter is drawing an analogy between God's time and our time. And yet, Peter is neither affirming that a day is a thousand years. The Greek word here, as, does not allow us to put in it as a thousand years. It's just an analogy. Analogy. Not that a thousand years is a single day before God. That's not the point. Peter is simply saying that the divine time is not the human time. The conclusion is that God's time is eternal. There is no time for God. God is not subject to time, not constrained by temporal categories that limit human existence. In this way, what false teachers, they misunderstood, as I said, the creature and creator distinction. So they had forgotten that the Lord is over time and governs history according to his own gracious purpose. And that human creatures are not only captive to time, but also cannot comprehend, much less control time. So how can you suppose that God is late? In his promise. And how many times we have do that. Not regarding to Christ's second come. But regarding to things that we are praying for him. Hey God. I think you are a bit late. But that is implication when we do that. So. Besides creating this distinction between God's time and man's time. Peter also introduced God's character in relation to his sovereignty. Could be a second point here, but I, I just put a sub-point here. In verse 9, Peter's thought is not denying. Peter is not denying that there is a delay in time. He acknowledged. For in his reference to the Lord's patience in the second half of the, this verse, he clear, clearly acknowledges. A delay in Christ's return. However, Peter refused the notion that the Lord is late. Why? Because that compromised his faithfulness, his character. As if Christ has failed to fulfill his promise. Rather, Peter reinforced the ongoing truthfulness of God's promise by saying that God is not slow. He is in the right time governing history in the right way, in the right speed. So Peter interprets the delay of the fulfillment of God's promise is not due to his lateness or negligence, but rather to his sovereign wisdom Timing, patient, 
control. So, brothers and sisters, it is one, one thing to not understand what time really means for God, because we are not God. But it's another thing to charge God for failing over time, for failing or even being late or negligent in fulfilling His promise in the right time. So Peter is really opposing this coffers here objection that God is late. No, God's not late. God is doing according to His holy character. And at the end, if Peter readers, if believers here could not deny the later, they had to accept and trust the former. In other words, if you acknowledge that God is holy and good, you need to acknowledge that God is running the time in the right way. Otherwise, you cannot call God holy if He's late, He's slow. So, still, in verse 9, Peter proposed another reason why God has delayed the arrival of the day of the Lord, here in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the raw, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done in, on it will be exposed. So, another reason why Peter is saying that God's not late here, in verse 10, verse 9, sorry, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some, the scoffers, are saying, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the second reason why there is a delay here on Christ's return is because of God's gracious divine action, patience, and mercy, and desire for all be saved. You see that? That's the reason. God's grace. So the gracious divine action of God Explain why Christ has not come yet. So that's account for the delay of Christ's second coming. And the repentance here refers to salvation, which leads to eternal life, which is in contrast with the destruction of the ungodly in verse 7. If you go to se verse 7, you see that the unrepented ones will be destroyed. The ungodly ones will be destroyed. And it's pretty, it's not new. It's not a new thing here. Throughout scripture, God emphasized his patience or delay in bringing judgment with association, in association with his, his being, being slow to anger. That's why he, he he has delayed his coming to judge. Exodus, Numbers, Psalms, throughout scripture, you have these statements saying, the Lord, 
a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Throughout the history of Israel, God kept saying that, I'm slow to anger, I'm gracious, I'm mercy, I'm patient. Now, in Isaiah, it's pretty clear. Isaiah, chapter 48, verse 9, you can see this gracious, divine action of God in delaying His coming. Verse 9, Isaiah uh, 48, For my my name's sake I defer, I delay, the Hebrew word, I delay my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you, that I may not cut off you. So why God is delaying His coming? Because He doesn't want to cut us off of His kingdom. And again, even for these believers here, Peter is writing to, it's not a new theme. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he had all that exhorted this believer to, to turn away from evil behavior. Verse 9 and 12, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, they were supposed to turn away from evil in light of the great promise in Christ and the imminent judgment. So Peter said, verse 20, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. You see that the delay was pretty much in light of Noah's preparing the ark. I'm going to wait for Noah. When he finished, then I'll bring judgments. And notice that although Peter answers the main question regarding God's delay in terms of God's gracious divine action, other questions arise here. We have a few problems here. I mean, apparent problems. It's not real problems, but some objections here. For instance, here's a question for us, if you haven't done this. Is Peter here affirming that the lack of repentance in humanity parts can delay Christ's second coming? Is that the point here? In other words, if the world does not repent, Christ is not coming. Now, if the world starts to do good works and repent, then Christ is coming. In other words, is God's sovereignty over time subject to the humanity repentance? Those are good questions here. If God is accomplishing the former, bringing all people to repentance, if that's the case, if God is willing and His plan is to bring all people to repentance, and He's not doing this, you can see that, isn't it? How can we trust that Christ is coming? So this question here relies mainly on another question. We, we saw here that God is willing, waiting for all. At the end of verse uh, 10, sorry. But that all should reach repentance. You see the delay? 
that the Leahy is explaining in terms of God's willing to all be saved. Now, we know that's not happening. So can we trust that God's still coming, Christ is still coming? If God's not fulfilling this, that all will repent, how can we trust that God will come one day? And again, the question, these questions, those questions here, those objections, when you go to study many commentators, liberals, theologians, uh, one question we need to answer here, for whom is God waiting for? to repent? That's the question we need to answer. For whom? Is God waiting for everybody to repent? We know that's not happening. So verse 8, go to verse 8, you see that Peter's attention here turns to the beloved ones. Do you see that? Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact. If before verse 7 and verse 6, Peter was speaking to everybody, including scoffers, now verse 8, he turns his focus to the beloved ones. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. I'm speaking to you now. I'm speaking to the elect. So Peter's attention now is primarily towards believers who he called beloved. And we know calling them beloved, Peter is not only marking a transition in his arguments, but also affirming their identity as baptized believers redeemed in Christ. That's the people that Peter is, is, is talking about here. And he had done before. Verse 1, he starts here, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And again, he's going to do in verse 14 and 17. So in Peter's concept here of repentance, does not mean all in its universal sense. Peter is not claiming for universalism, that all will be saved. But it's a covenantal sense here. Only those who are elect, the elect people, those who have been redeemed. Why am I saying this? Because in verse 10, Peter does affirm that these, the obstinate and unrepentant sinner will find that judgment comes when they were not expecting. When they are not expecting the judgment of God will come like a thief. So it proves that all here is not regarding to an unlimited repentance in mankind. If we have some people that we're going to be caught up unexpectedly, it means that they will be judged. So Peter is not talking about all here, but specifically to the beloved ones. To the beloved ones. Now, after assuring here um, his readers regarding God's sovereignty over time, regarding God's grace as he awaits for the elect to be saved, Peter turns to the events that surround 
Christ's second coming. And the first one that Peter emphasized here, I mean, the main one is it's the great judgment. The great judgment. In other words, as you see here, the heavenly bodies will be burned up, the earth will be judged. So when you think about the second coming of Christ, you need to think about the day of judgment. The day of the Lord here in Peter's mind and concept is one event bring two sides. Vindication for beloved ones. Vindication for Christ's church and judgment for God's enemies. It's not a separate thing. God's not going to save his people here and after how many years he's going to bring judgment to his, <laughs> to the, his enemies. No, it's going to be one-time events. Salvation and judgment. One-time event. And Peter said, there is, one way for, there is one way for us to see this. It's a list of events here. And the first one, uh, Peter speaks about the heaven, heavens here, which are best understood in the context as the sky, the universe, distinct from earth. Um, most commentators here said that the, these word here, heavens, heavens refers to the firmament of the sky, the heavenly bodies, the sun, star, they will be burned up destroyed. And the same way, Revelation 6 verse 4, John also described the same destruction the last day. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. In the Old Testament, the same, if you want to check it out, Isaiah chapter 34 verse 4, explain the destruction of the heavenly bodies. And similar declaration that the heavens will pass away. We've seen the gospel. Matthew chapter 5 verse 18, chapter 24 verse 29, Mark chapter 13 verse 31, Luke 21, 33, again Revelation 20 verse 11. And, and if, if you go home today and, and read all these passages here, there is one thing in common here whether from the Old Testament or the New Testament, is that the destruction of the heavens and the earth is in, related, in relation to the permanency of God's Word. In other words, just as God's Word cannot fail, the destruction of these heavenly bodies will happen. In the same way, this passage here carries the assurance of Christ keeping his promise despite the circumstances around us. And the second event here that Peter showed us is, is about the elements will be destroyed by means of being burned. And the Greek word here for, for elements points, points to the substance underlying the natural world. These are uh, basic elements from which everything in the world was made. It will be a massive global destruction. The point to all this destruction here, as one commentator suggests, is that 
quote, to bring about judgment, the Lord must peel back all that stands in the way. And this means removing the heavens, skies, and burning up the bodies that are in those heavens. Everyone will see that. Verse 10, keep moving, verse 10 ends with the most difficult sentence to translate. Let's go to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with, with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And this is the most difficult part. The, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What does it mean to be exposed? The Greek word here, it's even hard to pronounce, kakatatethai. <laughs> so this Greek word here that uh, the King James and other versions, they, they translate that the earth will be burned up. But the ESV still holds a good translation. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, will be disclosed, the, the NIV says. Why? That's a better translation. Because the notion here is that human being will found, exposed, disclosed before God in the final judgments. They will not be hidden in their sins and guilt. Everything will be exposed in the final judgments. As one commentator smoothed smooth out this translation, he says, the earth will be judged according to the deeds done on it. It's about the deeds that the ungodly ones have performed here. Again, this idea is not a new, it's not a new idea that God will certainly judge all the work of mankind here. You see Mark chapter 4, verse 22, John chapter 3, 21, 1 Corinthians 3, 13, Ephesians 5, verse 13. All over we see that God's going to expose the guilt and the sinful behavior of mankind. So, what is, the, what is the, the application for that? Knowing that Christ is coming and God's judgment is coming and it's a serious thing here. What, is it, what should we do for that? We need to, first of all, the fear of, of the Lord. We should not be deceived by the circumstances around us. We should not see the world, this place, as our inheritance from God. That's not a place. This place is going to be burned up. It's going to be destroyed. Don't try to, to store up treasures here. That should be a good application for us. Of course, we should, give, we should be good stewards. But don't, don't see this world as your final point. There is something coming here. And we see that in verse 12 when it says that again about the destruction but saying that the earth will be kept. But I think the main application goes to verse 14. 
Let's pursue holiness, purification. Therefore, beloved, since you are awaiting for this, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You see that? Since we know that God's coming, let's sanctify ourselves. Let's sanctify ourselves. That's the main application we can do here. Let's not corrupt ourselves with the corruption around us. Because such a corruption in this world will be judged by God. May God's grace help us. May our kids uh, not be deceived as I was almost in my childhood by my mom. But praise the Lord, my mom came to faith. And now she does believe that Christ is coming and is taking very serious. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promise. There are many times, O oh Lord, that we look around us and we doubt your word, we doubt your promises. So please help us. May your Holy Spirit apply the truth of the gospel in our hearts so that we can keep your words in a worthy manner, sanctifying ourselves, being set apart from this world which will be destroyed. Oh Lord, keep our hearts on things from above and help us, oh Lord, in all of this. We pray, O oh Lord, as you taught us how to pray. The scripture is really to be about remembering. It's not all about looking back and remembering, but it is a key component to our Christian living. Think of the Israelites. They were repeatedly reminded to remember the manna in the wilderness, the redemption from slavery out of Egypt, the safe passage through the Red Sea as Pharaoh's army perished in their pursuit and so forth. Remembering is a vital part of remaining with our focus on God. What a great encouragement it is to think that this looking back and remembering is only an element of looking forward as well. Looking back and remembering God's provision and simple kindness towards us gives us perspective and hope for the future. In a minute, when we, in about a minute, when we take uh, partake of the bread and the wine together, I'll read from 1 Corinthians the words of institutions, the words of institution, which concludes with, in remembrance of me. So as we partake of this meal together here this morning, let's remember his grace to us in our baptisms as well as the kindness God has shown to us as Christians, as citizens of this country, and as members of households in which he has placed us. And here we are invited to the table, everyone who is baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. When we eat together and drink the wine together, we are acknowledging that we are sinners. We're without any hope except for the sovereign mercy of God. We were trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So I welcome you to come, come to Christ. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. 
If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.